Well, I invite you to take your Bibles with me. Turn to Genesis chapter 6. We're beginning um, in this chapter, the beginning of this chapter, sorry. Verses 1 through 8 is our focus this morning. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, page 5, if you are using the church Bible. Okay, so let's give our full attention to God's word as it is read. And we do this because this word from God is uniquely powerful. It is no less authoritative than when God spoke the universe into existence. So let's honor it. Honor the Lord by honoring his word. Hear the word of the Lord. When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in a man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is God's word. Would you join me in prayer? We need divine help in this time. Father, because you speak, we can live And you have spoken and you continue to speak and this book of your words lies open before us. These are words of life. These words are our daily bread. They give us more nourishment for eternity than, than any meat that we could eat or bread. So, Father, we pray, nourish our souls. And we know how you do that because your word tells us that it ultimately points to your son in whom alone is life. So give us understanding. Cause this word to be made clear and applied to us by your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would grant us grace, grace to believe Grace to be changed. And grace more than anything to, to delight in you as a supreme treasure in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Now, I'm, I'm sure uh, you have thought at 
times, like I often think, what's going on in the world? And in particular, regarding this nation, what's happening in this nation? This is a, this last year, in the midst of a global pandemic, there's been injustices, both real and perceived, and those injustices have been met with, with civil unrest, acts of violence against people, property, government acquiescence. It seems to, to, uh, to all of this, prognosticators claiming and chiming in on the best way to resolve our collective woes. And just add to this that the many in seats of power think that they are acting righteously by advancing laws that make it easier to destroy the unborn, to deny the created order by blurring the male-female distinction and actively undermining the, the foundational and God-ordained institution of the family. We feel it, we see it, toil and strife increases and maybe like me you've wondered, where do we find rest from all of this? Of course, this isn't new, it's not new. It's really a pattern that we've seen repeated again and again and again. The final statement in the book of Judges, not that we've read that this morning, but the final statement in the book of Judges about the Israelites after they had settled the land, their own descent into ever-increasing rebellion, the statement about them has been true since the beginning of time. It says there, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They just did what was right in their own eyes. And we can see this from the beginning when Eve, who along with Adam, took of the forbidden fruit, they did what they thought was right. Not by God's clear instruction, no, but in their own eyes. They traded God's delightful rest for toil. That was the exchange that they made. When Cain, we dealt with this several weeks ago, when Cain murdered his brother, Abel, he, he thought he was doing what was right, at least for him. Not, of course, by God's word, not heeding God's warning, but in his own eyes. And he was cursed to further toil. And then carrying on the tradition of his forefather, when Lamech took two wives and corrupted justice, he did what he thought was right. Not according to the word of the Lord, but in his own eyes. Now against that reality, against that uh, tra trajectory of corruption. In Genesis 3, there was a promise given of an offspring, the one who would ultimately come and crush the head of the serpent. That was for Eve and for all of humanity. The breath of hope, a promise of rest, rest brought by the toil of sin promise of relief from the very disaster that Adam and Eve had ushered into the human condition. At the end of chapter 4 of Genesis, uh, with the birth of Seth, Eve wondered, and I'm inferring here, because she said God has appointed, I, I wonder if she was thinking, could this be the offspring? Could this be the one who was promised? And then with Seth's own son Enosh, it looked like things would turn around. As at that time, we're told, Genesis 4, 26, that people began to call upon the name of Yahweh, the Lord. Would he be the one to usher them back to Eden to give respite and relief from the toil? 
through chapter 5, in, in spite of the, the constant drumbeat of death, this line from Adam through Seth to Noah shows a marked contrast from the legacy of Cain. We dealt with Cain a few weeks ago. Cain built his civilization in Nod, away from the presence of the Lord. But by contrast, these Sethites seem to be taking a different path. And the standout in this line is is another Enoch, not the son of Cain, but a, another Enoch, who walked with God. Enoch walked with God. And in a sense, Enoch was invited to eat of the very tree of life when the Lord took him to himself, effectively bypassing death. Well, chapter 5 ends with Noah. And uh, as Bob uh, shared last week, with a glorious picture of the gospel embedded the the fact that these these uh, names pointed ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ that chapter ends with Noah with the consequence of rebellion that has plunged humanity into condemnation would it now be set aside well now we get to our text what we read together admittedly this is one of the most exegetically challenging passages in all of Scripture. So I want you to bear with me as I do my best to explain, but more importantly, to find some application. Well, what what happens? What happens in this chapter? We read it together. It turns bad, doesn't it? It seems like history is repeating itself. As Yogi Berra said, it is deja vu all over again. Now, We're going to unpack this section, and as we do that, I want to answer three questions. We see what happens. There's wickedness. So the first question, how did it happen? The second question, how did God feel about it? And the third question I want to answer this morning is, is there any hope for humanity? Do we see any hope for humanity in this text, and what does this point to? First of all, how did it happen? And let me just put the, 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 the statement out there. Unholy partnerships. Years ago, uh, a good friend of mine, he began a business venture with other partners. And, and for a while, everything was absolutely great. They, they became the fastest growing and largest firm in their particular vertical market. But some years down the road, things started to fracture. One of the partners began to spend lavishly and make business decisions that were very questionable. His personal life spiraled out of control. And eventually, another investor had to be brought in to rescue the firm. The decisions made by that investor worked ultimately to the detriment of my own friend. And to this day, to this day, he's still waiting for the courts to settle the matter to protect his own equity stake. Well, what happened? Some of the business partners didn't share his own values. And if you've been in business, you get this. It matters who you partner with. It matters more than that. More than in business, it matters who you partner with for your life. Now, we see at the beginning of the text that we read, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. Well, if we just stop there, Not a problem. Not a problem. This is the very thing, is it not, that God commanded the man to do. He commanded Adam, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, rule over it. 
But the problem, the problem shows up in verse 2, and we can see this. Verse 2, now this seems okay on the surface. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Now, that just seems like a prescription for finding a spouse, doesn't it? They saw that the daughters of man were attractive. But here's the problem. And they took as their wives any that they chose. Now, I want to skip to verse 4. As we see that uh, the Lord was grieved about this situation, but I want to skip to verse 4 and uh, consider these statements together. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These are the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Well, you can see the euphemism there. The, the sons of God came into the daughters of man. That's a procreative activity going on. So the, the product of these marriages and the children. Now, there are some essential interpretive questions that must be answered here. And again, I said that this is a challenging passage exegetically. Who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of men? And who are these Nephilim? Now, there are Bible scholars, and perhaps you've heard and read some Bible scholars, and, and I would say some who I have great respect for, have suggested this, that the sons of God are fallen angels, somehow procreating with human will, women. Sons of God, fallen angels, demon, demons, demonic, procreating with human women. And that the Nephilim are the offspring of these unions. Maybe you've heard that. Um, I'm going to say it at the outset. That's not it. In fact, I think that's absurd. Again, I know there are some I respect who hold that view. The reason I say that is because angels doing that which is sinful with mankind would not be so named sons of God. They might be sons of the devil, but not sons of God. But more importantly, Jesus spoke about angels in a question about marriage. The nature of angels, according to Jesus' word, must be considered. So let me point you to Matthew 23. You don't need to turn there. Jesus was challenged by some Sadducees who do not believe in a resurrection, but they wanted to trap Jesus with a question about what's called Leverite marriage. Leverite marriage in the Old Testament was, was the law that if uh, a man and a woman were married and that man died and he was childless, the next sibling would take his widow to be his wife and then the first child born would be reckoned to that older brother. Now the Sadducees come to Jesus with this test. Okay, there were seven brothers and all seven died leaving the woman childless. They ask Jesus, so in the resurrection, they think they're going to trap him, whose wife will she be? Now, that's the setting for Jesus' answer. And he says, for in the resurrection, they, these brothers, nor anyone in the resurrection for that matter, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Angels in heaven, there's no procreation going on there. So we set that aside. It's not fallen angels procreating with human women. To understand the sons of God and the daughters of man, I take it that what, is, what, what, 
what uh, Moses, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is doing is contrasting two different genealogies, the genealogy of Cain and the genealogy of Seth. Now, as I already stated, Cain built a city, a civilization away from the presence of the Lord. That's chapter four. His genealogy is marked by great human accomplishments, agriculture, arts, and industry. Really, it was a testament to the glory of man. It was a way, you'll recall, away from the presence of the Lord. This is, here's what I can do. Cain says, this is my legacy. This is my monument. I don't need you, God. By God's grace, he permits him and his, and his uh, and, uh, those following him to do great things on the earth. So, a testament to the glory of man. That's Cain's line through Enoch. By contrast, Seth's genealogy. These are the sons of God. Why are they called the sons of God? Chapter 4, verse 26. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, chapter 5 is, is that genealogy up to Noah. Again, why are they called sons of God? How are, they, how is, how are Cain, the Cainites not the sons of God? Well, it goes back to uh, the beginning of chapter 5. When God created man, it's a retelling of the creation. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam, now verse 3, had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness. You see, we're not told Cain was born in Adam's likeness. But he fathered a son, Seth, in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. You see, Adam was made in the image of God. Seth was born in the image of Adam. So I take it that the sons of God were in his likeness, which I take to be in part a moral designation. Not a physical designation, but a moral designation. These are the ones who began to call upon the name of the Lord. So now in chapter 6. Here's where the problem happens. You see, the sons of God, the line of Seth, they should have found their wives among those who called upon the name of the Lord. But instead, what did they do? They set aside moral standards and focused exclusively on external beauty. Verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. It doesn't say that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man called upon the name of the Lord. It doesn't say that. It's just that they were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. So, so I take it that, that they saw the external beauty of these women and they took any and perhaps even following after Cain's descendant Lamech they took any and as many as they chose. So it's entirely possible they took from among the Sethites, wouldn't exclude that, but they took from among the Cainites. They took any without distinction. They took. They took. 
And I think this harkens back to Eve's sin in the garden. What did she do? See, the Cainites, sorry, the, the sons of God being corrupted in their desires took any. They didn't receive what the Lord had given. And that's why I say it harkens back to Eve. Eve, in seeing that tree, she saw that it was beautiful. The knowledge of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And she took. God did not offer that. She took. Rather than receive the many good things that the Lord had given to her in the garden, all of the other delights, she took what had not been given. She took, in fact, what had been forbidden. So in, in chapter 6 here, rather than enjoy the good gifts that God had for them, the sons of God, they ignored the voice of the Lord and they took. They said, we're just, they're attractive. So who are the Nephilim? Who are the Nephilim? Now this word doesn't require that they be understood to be some superhuman species as some have suggested. So again, if you have procreating between fallen angels and humans, then you get these superhumans, demigods perhaps. And so it's entirely possible that they were of large physical stature, that not necessarily ruled out. Even today, we know this, certain ethnicities have unique physical characteristics that might set them apart from others. Stature, size, muscle tone, things like that. So it doesn't require that they be superhuman. They could have been large. Now, the only other reference in Scripture to the Nephilim is Numbers 13.33. If you recall the story, the spies are sent in to the land of Canaan. So they've traveled through the wilderness for 40 years. That whole generation died away. Those who were left were ready to take the land. Joshua's going to lead them in. Not, or, sorry, not, no, that hasn't happened yet. I've got this out of order. Moses is going to lead them. But they say, no, 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 they're, they're, the Nephilim are there. They're, they're too big. That leads to the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Got the order wrong. So I take it that the Israelites had simply exaggerated. They knew the story of the Nephilim. They said, hey, we, Moses, we can't take it. They're giants. It's too crazy. Can't do it. And they stirred up the people, giving a bad report. And, and the hearts of the Israelites melted. And then as a result, the Lord said, Okay, you're going to wander, and this entire generation will be wiped out. Your sons and daughters will possess the land. Well, I'm getting off. The, uh, the fact that Nephilim, we're told, were, were there at that time. We can take the word Nephilim to mean giant. It's part of the meaning of the word. But it could also simply mean tyrant or bully. So if we take Nephilim as a moral description, it would certainly be in keeping, would it not, with the kind of man Lamech in chapter 4 was, in Cain's line was. Remember, in Cain's rebellion, his wandering away from the Lord, he didn't depend on the Lord, he depended on himself, right? Perhaps he cultivated a culture of self-sufficient, self-aggrandizing tyrants and bullies. The text tells us that the Nephilim were in the land and also afterward. So the sons of God took daughters of this line. These were the men of renown. They were famous for their accomplishments. They were famous in the line of Cain for their pursuits, for perhaps even their warring. But they were not famous. They were not known for calling upon the name of the Lord. 
And what these marriages were were unholy alliances, and it led to judgment. Now, we fast forward through history and understand the Israelites are about to take the land under Joshua. Joshua tells the Israelites, or they're possessing it, they're beginning of possessing it, right? This is at the end of Joshua. Moses warned them, but Joshua reminded them at the end. Be very careful in Joshua 23. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Unholy unions lead to corruption. So let's make some application. If you are as yet unmarried, most of, mostly young men, young women, maybe widows, widowers, listen, it matters who you marry. And it matters to the Lord. Now you may think, you may think you're the exception. You may think that you're the exception in dating and marrying someone who is not aligned with you in your faith in the Lord. You may think you may be able to lead them to the truth. But I would ask you, are you stronger than King Solomon? First Kings, it tells us there. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women from among the nations which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for they surely, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And what does it tell us about Solomon? Solomon clung to these in love, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Even Solomon, with all the wisdom that the Lord had bestowed upon him, entered into unholy alliances. Commentator Matthew Henry said, The bad will sooner debauch the good than the good reform the bad. Very true. So the scripture is really clear here, Christian. Are you looking to marry? Trust the Lord for someone who is in Christ. Apostle Paul instructs, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? It's rhetorical, none. And listen, marriage isn't just about you. It's about who you bring into the world as a result. What does God want in your marriage, Christian? Malachi 2.15. Did he not make them one, one flesh? This is a marriage, godly people, with a portion of the Spirit in their union. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Godly offspring. That's what God wants. Now, beyond marriage... We can think of all kinds of ways where we can make unholy alliances. And we have to be partnered with people, but, but what's primary? 
What's primary? This is a heart matter. If your greatest confidence is in who runs the government, perhaps you're on the edge of an unholy alliance. It's about what we put first. Is your greatest confidence is as a citizen of this nation that you're going to be able to make the change. Perhaps you're flirting with an unholy alliance. It's not just about marriage. Well, second, how did God feel about it? I'll move more quickly through these points, and I know you're looking at the clock. How did God feel about it? And I just simply have the heading, God's regret. Now, feelings, they're, they're such an important part of our existence, aren't they? We feel joy, we feel sadness, we feel amazement, and at times maybe indifference. It's only in, in science fiction, right, that, that there's, uh, there's the, some kind of existence that is devoid of feeling. Gene Roddenberry's uh, Star Trek, the character, maybe you're familiar with Mr. Spock, he's an oddity to us. Pure logic, no emotion, right? Feelings are so much a part of our lives that, that they become part of our, our songs, don't they? Good feelings of love like, like James Brown. Wow, I feel good. I know that I would now. I feel good. I knew that I would now. So good, so good. I got you. Or sad feelings. Morris Albert sang in one of the sappiest songs ever. Feelings, nothing more than feelings. Trying to forget my feelings of love. Feelings, whoa, 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 whoa. Feelings. Now, some of you under 50 probably have no clue what that song is. If you want to look it up on Spotify, you'll find it's about the sappiest song ever written. <laughs> feelings matter, though, and we sing about them, right? Now, even the Lord, in his unlimited wisdom, his knowledge, his power, the Lord who is never unaware of any outcome or of the details of any of the things that he does, and yet the text tells us that he felt regret about the human race. Now with Seth, people began to call him the name of the Lord. But as time went on, the distinction between, between those who belonged to the Lord and the rest of the world was blurred. Unholy alliances caused people to waver in their faith in the Lord. So the Lord made a pronouncement. Verse 3, the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh his days shall be 120 years. Now, this is another passage whose interpretation is a little bit challenging. Some take the pronouncement that God means that going forward that the length of a man's life will be limited to 120 years. Well, it would take several generations even after the flood for this to become a reality. And Moses, for example, does live to 120 years. But, but even a 120-year lifespan was never typical after the period of the patriarchs. You may be familiar with Psalm 90. It says, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their sp span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Yet typically, typically, 70, 80 years, some God is gracious to give more, some we've known to live to 100 and I think the oldest person on record in the world at this point is just over 120 years. But that is not the norm. And I take it that the Lord has something else in view here. 
It's a judgment on Noah's generation. So at the time of this pronouncement, there would be 120 years, then life would end for mankind. The breath that God breathed into Adam and his offspring, he would take away. He would remove his ruach, that's the Hebrew word. He would remove his spirit, his breath, thus bringing death. Now, why would the Lord do this? Because the sons of God married the daughters of men? Well, in a sense, yes, but primarily because of the result of their unholy alliances, which is explained further in verses five through seven. Look at this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What a tragic indictment. Just understand that every thought, every intention, continually evil and only evil. Where is the image of God now? Yeah. God is grieved. Now, is this not the state of the human condition even now, ever since the fall? Do we not see this proclivity in our own hearts? The prophet Jeremiah writes, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, parents, you know what this is like. You know how this feels. Your child rebels. She, she abandons everything that you have ever taught her. Your son behaves like he hates every value that you hold dear. They don't want to be with you. They don't want to be around you. Now, hopefully that's a rarity among us, but some here have experienced that, that heartbreak. And what parent of a rebellious child has not cried out to the Lord in anguish? Why do we feel this way? Why does it matter? We love our children, right? And we long for the very best for them. But how much more, how much more does God, who loves with infinite, with a, with a love of, a, of an infinite depth and breadth that we can't even fully comprehend how much more does he love those whom he has created. Verse 6 continues, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man, animals, and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. See, those words used of the Lord describing how God feels if we can use the expression, how he feels. That's what the scripture says. Regret, grief, sorrow. God's regret, his grief and sorrow for the sin of mankind ultimately leads to judgment. Judgment. Not only did the Lord determine to blot out the humans, but the animals as well everything from the face of the earth, the birds that fly above the earth, all would be blotted out because of the wickedness of man. Listen, listen, friend. God is not indifferent to sin. The world makes light of this. Mistakes, 
Well, Phil was sharing this in Sunday school. Mistakes. Errors. It's sin. It's an affront to the very character of God. Sin is worthy of the full fury of God's wrath, and he is grieved. Don't get the picture that God somehow goes, ah, wipe them out, whatever. God is grieved by the sin of the world. He's grieved by your sin and mine. Now, the Israelites would repeat this cycle, wouldn't they? This cycle of rebellion again and again and again, and recounting their history, the prophet Isaiah writes this, in all their affliction, he, the Lord, was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love, in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and they grieved the Holy Spirit. And we repeat this cycle too, don't we? And God is not indifferent to our sin. And judgment will surely come. Yet, yet he is so full of of compassion for the people that he has made. Listen to the words of 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. That promise includes a, a point of judgment. He's not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's strange language, I think, that God does not wish. God does not desire. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So what's the answer? Repent. Turn away from your, from your sin now. Renounce it before the Lord. Plead with Him. Plead with the Lord to give you a genuine hatred for it. Plead with the Lord that you would loathe your own sin the way that God does a grief that God has over sin. Well, finally, what's the proof of God's patience in our text and beyond? Is there any hope for humanity? And this is where we come to the promise of rest, the promise of rest. Now, some of you have very difficult jobs. You do physical labor that is very hard, and day to day you get barely enough sleep and you back at it again. Work days bleed into weekends and you just long for a break from it all. For some here, parenting is the, the most difficult thing that you've ever done. Rebellion, heart, break, resistance from your children, maybe even outright expressions of hatred. You get through the day. Parents, you know what this is like, especially in a period of great difficulty. You lay awake worrying half the night. Before you know it, the sun is shining again. You get up and do it all over again. No relief in sight. Now, now, sometimes it feels futile. Now, others struggle against diseases and weakness and failing bodies and mental anguish. Now, this is not to say, is not to say that we don't have periods of joy and peace and accomplishment. We do. We cherish those moments. But we cannot fully escape the toil, can we? It's there all the time. It's around the corner. It's going to find its way in. And what's the cause of this toil? Why do we toil? Well, it is sin. It is your sin. It is my sin. It is the sin of Adam and Eve and Cain. It is the sin of every other mere mortal that has taken a breath on this spinning globe. And where can we find rest from this toil? Look again in verse 8. 
but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He found favor. Now, what's the significance of Noah? Why are we told this? Well, his father, Lamech, the better Lamech, the one in Seth's line, his father Lamech, he understood something about his son Noah when he named him. Genesis 5, 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So how would this one bring relief? The name Noah means relief or rest. In, in what way? Well, of course, God was patient, wasn't he? The fact that he made the announcement 120 years before the deluge. And what did Noah do while he built the ark? This is God's patience. Judgment's coming, but God's patience. What did Noah do? He preached. Now, it doesn't say so in our text, but the New Testament gives us clarity. By faith, it says in Hebrews eleven seven. 7, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah's condemnation of the world was his declaration of God's indictment for sin. The people of his generation needed to know that judgment was coming and why. Verse 8 says, Noah found favor, favor. Now, we think about this. Was Noah more righteous than the rest? Well, the fact of the matter was he was stained by the same inherited disease that his forefather Adam was. Yet Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And he found favor in the eyes of the Lord simply because the Lord chose to show him favor. That's what it comes down to. Noah called upon the name of the Lord because the Lord called him to himself. But beyond the person himself, Noah finding favor was also God's God showing favor, God showing grace to the human race. How in his own namesake did he become the point of rest, for, uh, rest and relief for humanity? How did Noah do that? Well, God determined to wipe out every living thing from the face of the earth because of the multiplied wickedness of man. But he chose to spare Noah and his family to, to preserve a small remnant and as it tells us in Hebrews, Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Righteousness by believing God. When God says something, we go, yes, I agree. When God says, you want to escape wrath? Trust me, yes. We perish because God says something, we go, yeah, don't bug me. That's why we perish. We live because we believe every word that God has said and Noah be believed. There's judgment coming. And we'll talk about this next week. Build an ark. All right. Must have looked extraordinarily foolish to all the unbelievers in his generation. Everybody except his own family. What's crazy Noah doing? What's an ark anyway? 
Noah represented a physical saving of the human race, but he pointed to a greater spiritual saving. Beginning with Noah, the earth would be repopulated, but again, they would once again descend into wickedness on the earth. Pattern repeated over and over. Going forward, the hope for all the earth, the hope for all of us would be faith in God's promises. Noah trusted. Noah trusted that the ark that the Lord told him to build would be for his saving. And we likewise must trust in the ark of Christ for our saving. You see, Noah, whose name means rest, he himself points to a greater rest in Jesus. Jesus, whose name means the Lord's salvation. Jesus tasted the judgment. Jesus experienced the deluge. Jesus came under the full weight of the wrath of God so that if by faith we would trust him, he could become our ark. Jesus declared, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Listen, friend, if you have not done so, look to Jesus and find rest for your own soul. This world is a mess, and it's a mess because we've made it a mess. And the only way that it can be fixed is that if you and I are fixed, that the whole world and their individual persons are fixed, and just like in the days of Noah, judgment will surely come. And the only way that you will not be swept away in judgment, the only way that you will find rest is by looking ultimately to the one that Noah pointed to, the divine Son of God, Jesus, our Savior, who died in your place, who was buried in a tomb, who rose again on the third day. Look to him in faith. For as Jesus said, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. And he's describing our time. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. There's coming a day of judgment. The world around us, everything that we see, will be wiped out, not by a flood. But judgment's coming all the same. And if we do not find ourselves by faith in Christ, we will be swept away. So so trust him. And if you have found yourself, if you are in Christ by faith, delight in that. We do not gloat over a world who will perish, but we live in a season of God's patience. 
And may we live in such a way that like Noah, who steadily worked at what God told him to do, that we, the people of God, will steadily work at the things that God tells us to do, to gather together, to proclaim Christ, to be the kinds of witnesses in the world that he wants us to be. And perhaps he'll be merciful to some that are around us as he was merciful to us. Well, let's pray. Father, we, we can't fix the mess in our own lives. And we thank you that in Jesus you have given us a rescue from our toil. And while we await for his glorious appearing, Father, we pray that you would keep us faithful as we recited together to fix our eyes on him the author and finisher of our faith. So Lord, teach us to number our days, to live like judgment is coming, and to trust moment by moment in all of your promises in your Son, our Savior Jesus. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.